and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I've been working my way through a mega series lately called These Seven Men Are Disrupting the Comic Book Industry. And the long and the short of it is, as you should probably know by now, is that I have a tremendous amount of affection for the early offerings of Image Comics. I think those comics are incredibly underrated. I'm not saying they're high art, but they are vastly underrated. And I think it's a real shame that they haven't gotten more love and appreciation over the years than they've gotten. And so I guess the idea behind this mega series is just to talk them up a little bit. You know, the stuff that I think turned out really, really well. And honestly, my options on this were sort of limited to the stuff that I could find on Comixology. Otherwise, I probably would have been talking about, well, some of the same comics, but there's one other title for sure that I would have been talking about. But uh, you know what? Maybe that's something to look forward to in the future, because I'm not finished with Image Comics, guys, not by a damn sight. So even though this These Seven Men mega series, this is gonna end pretty soon, actually. This is gonna end. I'm gonna be circling back to at least certain Image titles sooner or later, is what I'm thinking. So, but that's for the future. In the here and now, last week I talked about Spawn number one. So logically, that should suggest that today's subject matter is going to be spawn number two. I guess if I felt like fucking with people, I'd talk about these episodes, or these, uh, I would talk about these comics uh, out of order with one another, but I don't feel like fucking with people. So anyway, so yeah, so today is going to be spawn number two. The cover artists are Todd McFarlane and Ken Stacy. Writer is Todd McFarlane, penciler is Todd McFarlane, inker is Todd McFarlane, colorist is Steve Olive, letterer is Tom Orzachowski, uh, editor is Wanda Kalamajek. I'm still not sure how to pronounce that woman's name, by the way, but Wanda Kalamajek, I guess is... I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so, story is entitled Questions, Part 2. Story synopsis is as follows. A clown stands in an alley discussing, uh, discussing all the gruesome ways that he can kill somebody to an alley cat. The clown introduces himself as the violator to, the, to, to this alley cat and goes on to explain that he's going to be going after Spawn later that night. Speaking of Spawn, Spawn is drawn to the top of a church cross once again and he begins wondering how he's supposed to find his wife and, for that matter, how she's supposed to accept him now that he's been completely disfigured to the point where he doesn't really think he's human anymore. He curses the devil for betraying him in his deal to come back from the dead and knows that the devil is just messing with him. He knows he's controlling when he gets these visions and thinks it's a sick, twisted game to him. His thoughts are interrupted when he spots a strange clown, the one that we saw on page one, or the first page anyway, because I don't know if I can say page one in relation to comics that I get off of comics. But whatever. 
His thoughts are interrupted when he spots a strange clown waving to him from the shadows of a nearby rooftop. After which, the clown disappears into the shadows. Later that night at the Doncor building, mobsters are attacked and have their hearts ripped out from their chests. After that, the violator stands over a bloody mess. The news channels report on more heart surgeon killings. Another channel reports on Wanda Blake opening a new uh, healthcare clinic for disabled children. On top of the church, Spawn attempts to use his magical powers to transform his, his appearance back to the way that it was before he died. He's shocked to find out that he's accidentally turned himself into a white man where he knows he should be African-American. Elsewhere, Twitch and Sam discuss the paperwork piling up on their desk. They now have six cases from the heart surgeon and no leads. Elsewhere, the violator takes out a mob boss named Gino. He shudders when Gino mutters the name Jesus over and over again and rips his heart out of his chest. Back at the church, Spawn receives a flashback of, uh, of Jason Wynn, who had taught him how to fight. He recalls getting into more fights and disagreeing with, with Wynn's ideals more and more all the time. He found that Jason Wynn was slowly becoming truly evil. Spawn becomes faint from the shock and exhaustion and falls into a nearby alley. Upon waking up, he finds the clown and recognizes him from the rooftop. The clown tells him that he's the spawn, specifically a hell spawn, sent back to Earth. Dismissing all of that, Spawn makes his, uh, turns his back on the clown and tries to walk away out of the alley. Upon turning his back, the clown reveals his true form of being the violator and admonishes him to have a heart. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I no sooner finished last week's ep by which I mean no sooner finished recording last week's episode, than I realized, you know what? Son of a bitch, I never actually talked about the cover for Spawn number one. I mean, what a faux pas. So... I'm going to cheat a little bit and talk about the cover of Spawn number one, as well as the cover of Spawn number two. And honestly, it's really not that big of a cheat when you think about it, since Tom, um, uh, I was about to say Tom Morzachowski, uh, Ken Stacy painted both of these covers. And so I guess there is sort of a connection between the two. And if memory serves, it's actually issue number three before we start getting regular, well, by image comic standards, we get just regular color, uh, colored covers. So anyway, but for the first two issues, the, uh, the coloring, it's not actually coloring. It's, uh, this, this is a painting and both of these paintings are done, uh, by, like I say, by Ken Stacy. So for issue number one, when I was when I was a kid and getting into comics, every now and then painted work would come along, and I just didn't see it, guys. I I really I mean I knew that that any kind of uh, painting in, in in comics, it's an extremely laborious, very labor intensive task, and so it is special 
to see painted anything in comics, at least back in those days, right? But it's like at the same time, when comics were were painted back then, or anything to do with comics or trading cards or just whatever, when those things were painted back in those days, what that really meant was they were going to cost a fuckload more. And honestly, for as good as some painting might look, it just, to me, it, this this was a trade-off that I just, I personally was not willing to make. And it kind of, honestly, it sort of pissed me off that I wasn't given an option on that, you know? And so, I don't know. It just bugged me. Now, having said all of that, the a lot of the painted stuff that I can remember seeing before looking at Spawn number one and number two, it just... A lot of it looked just kind of meh to me. There wasn't really anything super special about it or or anything that made it more attractive or anything like that. And so as a result, it was kind of, again, when I was a kid, this was sort of a, a, a double whammy for me where I, I didn't really like most of the the painted work that I'd ever seen, and on top of all that, as if to add insult to injury, buying all of this stuff that I don't want and don't really care about always cost extra. So what's a boy to do? Now, I say all of that to say this. The, 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 the paint job that we see, or paint jobs, really, that we see on uh, Spawn number one and number two just ain't even like that. First off, at least in terms of cover price, Spawn number one and number two cost the same as the other issues of Spawn that were released subsequently, so really nothing is lost there. Although then again, a buck ninety-five, that was the cover price back in 1992, that was still significantly higher than the average back in comics, so I don't know, maybe it's all relative. I don't know. But anyway, the the other thing is, this is some amazingly good coloring work that we see on the cover of issue number one, where there are gradients going on and uh, highlights to things. The shadow, basically Spawn's left hand is casting a shadow onto his cape. And it's actually a pretty convince, uh, convincing and realistic looking shadow. And like I say, there are like these blue highlights uh, on his cape. There are these bats flying around. Uh, his hand, his right hand, is, uh, it's got, it's going, it's glowing green with uh, necroplasm. And all in all, this is just a phenomenal, first off, it's just, it's a really well-drawn cover. So there's that to think about. But the other thing, uh, the other thing is just the color ring, presumably done by Ken Stacy, since he's credited with it. This I remember thinking, like, even as a kid, if all painted comics looked like this, I would probably like painted comics more than I did. But they didn't all look like this. But I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't want to get too hashtag comicsgate here or anything, but I do, I do tend to subscribe to this theory that bright colors... Nothing too dingy or dull or washed out, but I mean just like ultra bright colors like we're seeing on the cover of Spawn number one. This is always going to be more visually interesting to passers-by than, 
It seems like in comics these days, it's like everything has to be fucking brown. Like everything has to be this kind of sepia tone. And even if it's not actual sepia tone, like literally sepia tone, everything still has this kind of dingy brown sort of overcast to it. And it's just just fucking, it's just boring. It's boring to look at, okay? And I don't know. It's obviously that's not a problem here on Spawn number one. You've got the bright red of Spawn's cape and elements of his bodysuit. There are some blues in there. One of the uh, the uh, bats is uh, silhouetted in purple. There's some other purple elements just sort of floating around. Uh, and like I say, his right hand is glowing green with uh, necroplasm. And so you got this big, bright, almost garish kind of green effect. That And that's got a bunch of gradients and stuff to it. And there's some yellowing to it as well in, in, in the inner core. And then as it works out, it gets more into like this... Um, I don't even like kind of a lime green sort of a color. And it's just, first off, it's just really fucking cool. Really cool to look at. But the other thing is, this would have stood out on shelves back in 1992. Now, to my knowledge, most copies of Spawn number one didn't sit on shelves for very long before they were instantly snatched up. But I'm just saying that going by the conventional rules of comics, Spawn number one would not have sat on the shelf very long, even though it didn't sit on the shelf very long, but it wouldn't have sat on the shelf very long anyway, because this would have been attractive to people as they were just perusing the comic book rack and looking at the new releases that week. This would have stood out to them. Now, I'm not saying that that like a million people or whatever the number was bought Spawn number one because of the colors on on the cover, but it's like at the same time, I think we're kind of foolish if we overlook the fact that people are just drawn to brighter colors. It's it's just, it's that simple. So anyway, so that's the cover for Spawn number one. Getting into the cover of Spawn number two, this is, this is not as colorful as Spawn number one, like in a completely relative sense. There, and here again, you just don't, there are no browns uh, going on here and just, drowning everything out in this visually boring miasma of boring brown boringness. I don't know. It's just bleh. So not going on here. This is Spawn. He's in a graveyard. He's sitting on uh he's sitting atop his own tombstone. And for the most part, he's kind of swallowed up in this sort of uh shadowy blueness that's dominating most of most of the color palette, at least in the lower half of the cover. But you do get a lot of splashes of color. It looks like there's a sun, a, a sunset going on in the in the distance. You've got the brightness, uh, the bright redness of his cape. And I don't think that Spawn number two has as good a cover as Spawn number one because that's just a fucking great cover. But this too would have been attention grabbing for anybody back in 1992, even if they didn't know who. Todd McFarlane was, or they didn't know what Spawn was, they didn't know what Image Comics was all about, this cover still would have stood out to them. And this is just a really cool cover, made all the more so, I think, by Ken Stacy's paint job. So why is it that Ken Stacy didn't stick around? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But a great big part of me kind of wishes that he had, because this is some amazingly good work that we're seeing here. So anyway, so that's it for the covers, I think. Now, uh, getting into 
the actual issue, page one, and then just sort of going forward from there. Although I would say really, you know what? Actually, I can't even say page one, can I? Hold on. Yeah, actually, this is Comixology's page three. So getting into page three on Comixology, and then I would say really more page four, but still, page three and four both. You know, when I was a kid, and God knows now, I thought that the clown, at least at least to start with, the clown really did resemble uh, Lawrence Tierney. The, he played, I think probably what most people of my generation would know him from is Joe Cabot from Reservoir Dogs. And not so much his body type, although kind of, but the guy's face, just visually, he... He resembles Joe, no, I can't say Joe Cabot. He resembles Lawrence Tierney to me, you know, and I always thought so when I was a kid, and I definitely think so now. I don't know if it's the nose or the the jawline, you know, uh, his lips. I don't know, but it, something about this has always screamed Lawrence Tierney to me. Now, I don't think that as as a penciler that, McFarlane was necessarily known for casting in his comics. I mean, I think it's, like I said, I think it's actually pretty obvious here that, well, it seems obvious to me anyway, that there had to be some kind of Lawrence Tierney influence going on with the design of the clown. But, you know, you start thinking about other things like Angela, the character Angela, who I always thought looked a little bit like Lolita Davidovich. And then... Uh, Twitch and Sam, they sort of look like other, like, like actors at the time. I don't know that I, my memory of it is like I say, McFarlane wasn't really known for casting like IRL actors in his comics, but it's like at the same time when something is as obvious, I'm, you know what? Fuck it. Don't take my word for this. If you're following along in this in comiXology, look at page four or page two in your print copy, but look at page four in your comiXology a copy of this issue page uh page four panel one the clown is he's sort of gritting his teeth and he's doing the explainy hands thing and he's talking shit about himself to that alley cat and there's just something about his facial expression his brow he just looks like lawrence tierney to me now this raises the question was Reservoir Dogs an influence on the design of the clown? And I honestly don't know how that could be possible, because according to Comixology, Spawn Number 2 came out on July the 1st, 1992, whereas Reservoir Dogs, uh, this was released, let's have a look-see, October the 9th, 1992. So it's now, to be fair, it did premiere in Sundance on January the 21st, 1992. But it's like, either way, I, I, I just, I don't think that Reservoir Dogs specifically would have had too much of anything to do with the design of the clown, at least as far as influencing McFarlane. Having said all of that, it's not like Reservoir Dogs is the only movie that Lawrence Tierney ever made. There, there were quite a few. 
And so just to kind of hit up the guy's filmography for just a minute, there, starting in 1985, there was a movie called uh, Prizzy's Honor, and then going forward from there, Silver Bullet, Murphy's Law, From a Whisper to a Scream, Tough Guys Don't Dance, The Naked Gun, House 3 Horror Show, Why Me, Dillinger, and something called Wizards of the Demon Sword that doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry, so I don't know. So my point is, McFarlane could have seen uh, latter-day Lawrence Tierney in any of those movies and thought, you know what, he'd be a good villain in my comic book, I think. So, I don't know. To my knowledge, McFarlane has never commented on that one way or the other, although, having said that, you know, to my knowledge, that doesn't really account for very much because... I don't, no offense to McFarlane, I don't exactly follow every single interview that he gives. So, I, I mean, I have no idea. Maybe he has said something about it, but I've never seen him say anything like that or heard anything like that. So, I don't know. I'm just saying, the clown, visually, he just reminds me of Lawrence Tierney. So, anyway. So, elsewhere, this is uh, this is getting into page five and just going forward from there. We get... We we catch up with Spawn. He's just sort of hanging around the top of a church, and again, I, I mean, I don't want to draw. I don't want to draw this out too much, but there is a reason that he keeps coming back to a church. There is significance in that. It's, it's a little bit of a pun, but there is some significance in that, and so. Basically, you've got Spawn, he's just kind of stewing in his problems, you know, why me, and all of that. And as I said in the last episode, we we need to evaluate Todd McFarlane, the writer. I would say using very different criteria than we evaluate Todd McFarlane, the penciler. Because Todd McFarlane, the penciler... I don't want to beat this to death like I did last week, but Todd McFarlane, the penciler, by whenever, 1992, had drawn hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of comics. And so Todd McFarlane, the artist, is a very accomplished um, uh, talent, shall we say. Whereas Todd McFarlane, the writer, is still getting his feet his feet wet. So one of the, I think, fair criticisms that you can make about Spawn number one, and really several issues of uh, uh, of this series, but definitely Spawn number one, is that the writer of those issues is definitely still learning his craft. And so when you've got basically three nonstop pages of Spawn, he's just... Uh, kind of stewing in his own uh, misery, and really not very much is happening. And this goes on for three pages. We need to just keep in mind, Todd McFarlane, the writer, has done far fewer comic book pages than Todd McFarlane, the penciler. So that's just something to be aware of there. So anyway, now moving right along, uh, one of the things that I sort of gave away in the synopsis is the fact that the monster that's tearing out everybody's, all of these different gangsters hearts in, in New York city, this monster is the clown. 
you know, basically this character or these two characters, they're actually one character, and this character's name is the Violator. Basically, the clown transforms into the viol into like the monster, the Violator, and so that's that's how this works, and that's a little bit of a reveal that happens on the very last page of this issue. Somebody who knows nothing about Spawn and is reading these issues, excuse me, reading these issues in order, wouldn't know that until they get to the very end of this issue. And I kind of like that because I'm of the opinion that no matter which era you're writing your comic book in, every comic book that you release, it needs to have a beginning it needs to have a middle, and it needs to have an ending, all right? Something needs to be introduced in this, in this one issue and then resolved in this one issue. Now, you can continue ongoing subplots. You can have multi-part stories and all of that fun stuff. But in each issue, the character or characters, they need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They need to achieve something or complete something. They need to finish something. And there also needs to be some kind of a reveal. The readers need to know something at the end of the issue that they couldn't possibly have known before reading the issue. And so in this case, we actually learn a little bit about the violator. We learn about the clown we learn that there's a monster running around New York City that's uh, killing all of these different gangsters and ripping their hearts out. And we learn that the clown and the monster are the same being, and this being's name is The Violator. And so when it comes to this, I mean, look, issue number one, it's well, the most I'm willing to say is that it's debatable that something was introduced and then resolved in in the first issue. Here, it's not open to debate. Something new was introduced, and then it was, it was resolved in as much as the reader was clued in on what's going on here. So, anyways. And the other thing is, the I, I'm going to be talking about, well, obviously, Spawn number one and number two, but I'm going up to I'm going through issues number three and number four in this me, in this mega series before I move on to something else. And honestly, guys, this isn't a criticism. I mean, it's not a praise, but it's not really a criticism either. These four issues of Spawn, there's really not a whole lot of action that's going on here. You know, by this equivalent point, just to kind of draw a parallel here, by this equivalent point in say, uh, the run of Wildcats that uh, that I went through earlier in this mega series. I think by, by the same point, which is page eight, or Comixology's page eight of the second issue, we'd already had like three big battles or something like that. Whereas here in Spawn, the story is unfolding at a far more leisurely pace. It's all about the mood and the setting and the atmosphere and we haven't really had any kind of, you know, big pitched battles between, well, whatever passes for the good guys in Spawn and the bad guys. You know, there hasn't really been any of that yet and won't be for quite a while. And there's just not much of that in general 
and spawn numbers one through four. So again, that's not good and that's not bad. It's simply true. And so this section here, beginning on beginning on Comixology's page eight, where we see the violator in his monster form, uh, uh, basically kill. Well, we see actually the death of one mobster, but it's implied that there are. It, yeah, it's implied that there's at least one other one, possibly. There could be a total of three victims in all of this, but for sh two for sure. And I guess what I like about that is it does add a little bit of drama and some suspense to all of this. It adds kind of an action, a bit of an act. It adds a little bit to the action quotient. And it also introduces peril. You know, our protagonist, I don't know if I can call this guy a hero exactly, but our protagonist, he's clearly facing some kind of a threat. And I, I think the peril of all of that, it's actually enhanced at the end of this issue with the reveal that the clown is the violator and the violator is the clown. They're the same thing. And just overall, I, I just I just really like this. This is, And getting into a page, Comixology's page 10, this is really the big money shot or one of the big money shots of this issue. It's a full-page splash of the Violator. He's standing in this bloody hallway. Uh, there's a human heart laying on the ground next to him. The hallway's just covered in blood. The Violator's covered in blood. And it's just... This is just really creepy looking and just... It's just really cool. I I like it. So, uh, let's see. Now, moving right along, we get our three newscasters once again. There's the ultra-right-wing uh, Warhawk. There's uh, E! Entertainment Television Guy. And then there's the uh, CNN Info Babe. And this, this is useful exposition. It, 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 it kind of lets the reader know like what the people are thinking. You know, they're, they're here. And it also gives you an idea of what the general public knows about what's going on. And they don't know much. I mean, we readers know a hell of a lot more than the general public does. And one of the things that actually turned out, I think, really well is the E! Entertainment television guy. He's basically... He's basically critiquing... Uh, I don't even know how else to call... how else to describe this except young blood fashion sense. And... At some point, I'm probably going to do an episode or three about Young Blood, and I don't want to, I don't want to take too much away from that episode by covering that material here. But I do want to mention that this is good universe building. You know, at this time there was the assumption by everybody, including the Image co-founders that the Image co-founders were going to be creating a shared universe along the lines of Marvel. And at least to start with, they did. Now, that ends up not lasting for very long, for really, I would say, a variety of reasons. But at least for right now, they are, they are, trying, to, they, they are trying to all exist inside the same, the same fictional universe. And so as a result of that, we get a little bit of 
universe building that I think relates more to Youngblood than it does to Spawn, which is why I'm not commenting on, on it too much, except to say that this does exist. And I think this is actually a very fascinating uh, uh, piece of world building. Uh, you know, this whole commentary on Youngblood fashion accessories and their costume designs and all that. And uh, that's definitely something I want to save for a possible Youngblood episode or episodes in the future. So moving right along, getting into comics, uh, Comixology's uh, pages 13 and 14, and then I think even a few pages after that. Spawn attempts to transform himself into a some type of a human form, and it doesn't work. And he's basically this kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed sort of poster boy, which, for somebody who's black, I guess that would just have to be hor uh, horrifying. I mean, imagine that you're trying to change your appearance from this kind of hideous, scarred, demonic form to something that, basically back to your true self, only you turn out as the wrong race. Well, I think anybody would be upset about the fact that they, you know, in these circumstances, they've accidentally set themselves up into the wrong ethnic group. I think that would, that would be bothersome, horrifying to a lot of people. So I think it's pretty easy to understand why Spawn doesn't want to be white. So it, it makes a lot of sense. So, and I, well, and I, I guess what I mean by that is I don't think he would want to be white no matter what, but his objective here is to turn himself back into his, uh, his normal human form so that he can talk to his wife and his wife knew him as a black man. So if he shows up as a white guy, claiming to be her dead husband. I mean, it's already going to be hard enough for her to believe as it is that her husband is back from the dead. But if it's some white guy who's saying that he's her husband, well, yeah, that's a, it's a bit of a no-go zone. So um, this is another one of those things where you can argue that maybe McFarlane indulged this a bit too much because this whole thing of trying to restore his form it basically goes on for, it's all in how you look at it, but it could, depending on how you look at it, it could be like five pages. And that is, what is that? That's like a quarter, that's like 25% or something like that of your comic book. That is excessive. You know, five pages for anything is arguably excessive. So I don't know. But again, McFarlane, the writer, is less experienced than McFarlane, the penciler. So just something to be aware of there. So interspersed with all this business of Spawn attempting to restore his human form, we see the Violator killing even more mobsters. And the reason for all of that is going to come out in a subsequent issue. Not for nothing is the Violator whacking out all of these different gangsters. But there's a purpose for that. And it's going to be, it's going to be elaborated upon. So, so anyway, Spawn comes to in the alley after trying to re restore his human form. He comes to in the alley face to face with the clown. The clown tries to be all buddy buddy with him. And this is actually one of the aspects of the clown's character that I just kind of like, you know, he's 
he's basically this is on uh, page comicsology's page 22 he's basically talking a salty line of shit to to spawn he says whether you believe it or not i could beat you silly with one hand tied behind my back or i could rip the toenails from your feet and sever the tendons in your calves and another thing mr big shot I could, I could rip your spine out and use it like a whip, and I could snap your bones like the brittle chunks that they are, and I could tear your head off and use it as a basketball, and I could cut you up into bite-sized pieces and mail you across 50 different zip codes. Are you scared yet? And he's just talking shit for literally no reason. And, like, the thing is, I mean... Spawn really should have known that something's up with with the clown because first off he's just impossibly short so there's that but he's also got like these demonic looking red eyes <clears throat> and this really gnarly wicked looking mouth and everything and this guy is clearly not human i mean just to look at it that should set off the uncanny valley for anybody you should know that you're not talking to a to a normal human here, you know? So, anyway. I just like it. And I like uh, the clown as this kind of shit-talking... He's just this obnoxious, bratty presence that... Anyone who met somebody like this, you're just thinking, my God, get me away from this guy, you know? So, and then, like I say, on the very last page, it comes out... There's a lot more to the violator than meets the eye. So, anyways. This is just a good issue. I just love this. I love this art. You know, like, like take this, for example. Page, Comixology's page 17, where Spawn is atop the church building. And now he's just, he's caught up in a whirlwind of his own power. He's trying desperately to, to be not white. This is how much the, the motherfucker doesn't want to be white that he's trying to restore his chewed up, rotting, dead, like demonic form. Because I guess to him, that's eminently preferable to being, to being white. And you can see just this huge molestrum of uh, necroplasm. It's uh, zipping all around him. It's like a whirlwind. It's whipping his cape around. It's even lifting him up off the ground. And this is just a really fucking cool page. I just dig the art in all of these issues. And I think Spawn number two, well, McFarlane definitely lived up to his reputation here. I'll, uh, I'll say that much. Anyway, so yeah, there's Spawn number two, Hoss. Now, getting into feedback a little bit. Actually, first, just want to get a little, uh, sip off my Coke here, just a minute. And what the hay. Some vapor, too. All right, so, got some feedback here. This is dated May the 19th, 2015. Sent in by my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime. Subject line says... Untold Tales of Spider-Man and Batman Prey. Prime writes, Hey Magnus, sorry this one is late, but 
Wow, you are almost a year behind on your emails as is. And Prime, I'm putting your email on pause pretty much right from the jump here and say, dude, I'm a lot further behind than that. But hopefully by now I've shown everybody that I'm, I really am making good on getting caught up on all this and, and getting all the feedback squared away because I really did let it go for a pretty long time and I apologize for that. So uh, trying to get everything up to speed right now. So getting back, uh, getting back to Prime's email, he says, I've read a bunch of issues of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and I really enjoyed it. Kurt Busiek doing what Brian Bendis never could do as the backstory issues of Alias showed. Not completely fucking up continuity when telling stories set in the past. <clears throat> and, Prime, I'm putting your email back on pause here to say that, honestly, you know, I, look, Prime, as you know, I'm the guy that did the Tremendous Bendis Weekly series in defense of Brian Michael Bendis. You know, I I wouldn't exactly say that I'm an apologist for the guy's work, but uh, I do think that quite a bit of it, and I mean like a fair amount of it, is pretty underrated. You know, now there are times, I think, when people have got like legit point. You know, they they have certain grievances against... Uh, Bendis's writing style, even at times. I mean, much less the stories that he's actually done, the style even in which they are written, all right? And I'm not here to tell those people that they're wrong or anything like that. It's just the point of that whole tremendous Bendis Weekly thing was to say that the guy really has done some good stories uh, at times, you know? And I would even go so far as to say he's got some good runs. That was where things stood at the time that I did the tremendous Bendis Weekly series, but it's I don't know, man, like in the inter intervening, like what's it been, like four, maybe five years, it's all that goodwill that he generated, at least with me personally, it's like he went so far out of his way to to undermine or even to just completely undo, you know? Now, when you get into more technical stuff, like his, as you say, his inability to tell stories that are set in the past without screwing up quote-unquote current continuity. Hey, look, here again, I can't exactly disagree with you, Prime. I'm just saying that, you know, for a guy like me who who did the Tremendous Bendis Weekly series, who really, I think, did a lot to defend Bendis over the years— I'm almost tempted right now to just disavow the whole thing and pretend like I never did that, except I'm not going to be so, I don't know, dishonest. But it's that is something that I really don't stand by anymore, you know? I really don't think that uh, I've got the same high opinion of Bendis that I once did. So, anyway, all of this is, I guess maybe that's a long way of saying, yeah, I pretty much agree with you. Especially, by the way about Untold Tales of Spider-Man, but reading ahead, I mean, I know that we're definitely going to get into that a little bit. Prime goes on to say, of course, the... Yeah, of course, the writer, who is a man who knew Fast Forward, who knew who Fast Forward was when I asked if Avengers slash Justice League would send the man home. Buziak said no, but again, he understood what I was asking, as if that was going to send the pre-crisis Flash back home. Bendis just cares about the stories he wrote, and even had the Purple Man mock that fans cared about continuity. And, Prime, I'm going to put this email on pause and say that 
it's kind of fashionable these days for comic book creators to lambast fans on uh, on Twitter or God knows elsewhere, but Twitter is obviously the easiest thing. So we'll just, we'll just point to Twitter. You know, people sometimes ask me, big magnets, big magnets, why do you hate Twitter so much? Look at the way fucking comic book pros behave on Twitter. All right. It's to a point now, like uh, the block, the, the blockchains that they've got, or even the ones that don't wholesale block people like Gail Simone, or at least she hasn't blocked everybody. But she's blocked a lot of people, I, I would imagine. I mean, I don't know that to be true, but I imagine she's blocked a fair number of people. But again, certainly not everybody. And the way that she treats people who disagree with her about just a, just about anything, and we're not talking about personal attacks. We're not talking about insults uh, against her personally. I mean, people who don't necessarily like the fact that you know, comics is the easiest thing. That really is the common denominator here. So we'll stick with that. Hey, look, I just, I really don't like where XYZ comic book is going. You're a Nazi! You know, just shit like that. And so, anyway, so, God, what was my point in saying all of that? Oh, yeah. So, you know, everybody has sort of their own idea on when exactly it was that the phenomenon of comic book creators picking on comic book fans began, all right? Dan Slott one time had an infamous message board post where he basically told a fan to go fuck himself, and that was like 10 years ago or something like that. I mean, it was a pretty it was a pretty big deal. And the thing about it is, we might have been able to tamp this whole thing down if some editor or editor-in-chief or even an assistant, somebody pulled Dan Slott aside and said, "Okay, look, number 1, this book, that uh, Amazing Spider-Man, that you're working on? Yeah, you're fired off of that. We're going to move you over someplace else. Uh, you know, we can't let you get away with this, okay? We don't want to be out of the Dan Slot business. But it's like at the same time, dude, we cannot let you get away with cursing out fans who don't like your work, okay? So we're going we're gonna to make a big public stink about the fact that you've been fired off of Amazing Spider-Man, which honestly, that's the least of what you deserve for doing what you did. But we're not going to alienate you. We're going to move you over to a different title. We're going to just lay low for a little while. And when the heat dies down, you know, your new book, wherever it is that we're going to put you, that's going to start up. And we're going to woo the fan press on this. We're going to get them on our side. And we're going to put this whole thing behind us. But motherfucker, you are never going to do that again. The next time that you tell a fan to go fuck himself, you're out. Forever, I will do every legal thing in my power to make sure that you never work in the comic book industry again, motherfucker. Do you understand? And basically, what I'm saying is just like dressed the guy down. You know, he needed to get corrected on that. He needed to be fired off of the book. And I'm even, you know what? Hey, people make mistakes by all means. You know, you don't necessarily wholesale fire the guy from Marvel. You can fire him off uh, uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Hey, that's fine. Whatever. You don't necessarily need to fire the guy off Marvel, but you do need to to sit him down and say, this is your warning. You cannot say now that you weren't warned. From here on in, you're going to fly right. Because otherwise, woe is you as a professional in this industry. Or as a soon-to-be former professional, not in this industry. Do you understand what I'm telling you? You know, 
And I can't help but think this whole phenomenon of creators insulting fans. Look, I'm not here to say that this whole Dan Slot situation, that's where it started. Some people think that it is. I'm not too sure about stuff like that. I mean, obviously that was a huge deal. I'm not I'm not saying that it wasn't, but it was that was like 2010, whereas my memory of it is uh, Bendis doing uh New Avengers. I think it was New Avengers where uh, the purple man basically was making fun of uh continuity fans. That was like 2000 four or something like that 2005 i want to say i don't it was around there you know it it was pretty this is my point it was a pretty long time before the infamous dan slot go fuck yourself incident and and or or here's another example um crisis on no geez listen to me (laughs) um it was not crisis on infinite earths god knows um, it was, it was the, the final crisis Legion of three worlds where basically Jeff Johns wrote Superboy prime kind of as a surrogate for like the whinier contingent of the fan base. And it's like, look, these are people who are expressing opinions about the work. They're not attacking. They're attacking the work. Yes, but they're not attacking necessarily the creators on a personal level, like making it a personal hobby of theirs to sign on to Twitter. Hey, Jeff Johns, go fuck yourself. You know, they're not doing that. They're basically saying, I don't grab, they're basically saying, I mean, maybe in a more profane way, but they're basically saying, I don't want to read books by so-and-so creator because so-and-so creator has done such and such things with continuity and storylines and characters that I'm just not hip to. I mean, that's a very G-rated, very sanitized version of it, but that's basically the point. They weren't insulting Jeff Johns on a personal level. They may have been insulting Jeff Johns on a professional level, but not on a personal level. And so what? what's the remedy for this? Jeff Johns basically writes Superboy Prime as this kind of whiny fanboy brat. And or in or to use specifically your example, you know Bendis writing uh, the Purple Man, making basically as you say, he's making fun of the fans who care about continuity. And like I say, everyone has their own idea on when this whole phenomenon started. And look, I'm not here to tell you that I even know or am qualified to say when this started, but I do remember thinking that, look. What Bendis did in a normal, sane, rational, healthy comic book industry, that would be way over the line. Okay, just that all by itself. Forget all the other stuff I mentioned. Just that one thing by itself, that's way over the line. But when I start thinking about, like I say, what Jeff Johns did with Superboy Prime or what Dan Slott did on that one message board telling that fan go fuck himself... You know, yes, it's it's not small potatoes that that Bendis wrote the Purple Man in that way. But it's like at the same time, it just considering how bad things have gotten, I can't help thinking that this whole business with Purple Man, you know, that's kind of a meek form of protest considering some of the other shit that we've seen over the years. So anyway, Prime, I'm I'm virtually positive that nothing I'm saying here was ever anything that you had in mind. This is not what you intended. 
And I apologize for that, but this has just been something that's been on my mind for a while. Um, a long while, actually, because what happened was there... Guys, I tend not to talk about myself on a personal level here just because I know that I've got some kind of unusual viewpoints on certain things, and it's not always easy to relate to me on like some kind of personal level. And so I try not to put my listeners in the position of having to relate to me on a personal level. But I just want to go ahead and throw this out here. It's not like I don't have skin in this game myself, all right? There was a time when... Guys... Hear me out before you throw a fit, okay? Just want you to listen carefully. There was a time when I was planning to cover on Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, the Chuck Austin run on Action Comics. And the reason for that is because I dig that run. I like Chuck Austin. Look, I'm not here to tell you that everything Chuck Austin has ever written is gold. I would never make that claim. But I really... I really dug his his action comics uh, run. I thought, you know what? It's underrated, and people are kind of judging it when it's incomplete. You know, I mean, he never really got a chance to finish the uh, his run properly. He basically got fired off of it before he could uh, bring it to the conclusion that he had in mind, and so people have. Well, they've basically formed judgments about what is what it looks like his run was was going to do vis-a-vis throwing a monkey wrench into the Superman Lois marriage when the guy never got a chance to finish what he started. And so basically judging his work when it's incomplete that's just not cool. And that was basically going to be sort of the central thrust of of my discussion of Chuck Austin on Action Comics. That's basically where I was going to take it, right? In the end, that's where I was going to go. Now, obviously, that's never going to happen, and that's in no small part because I posted something or other on Facebook. It was a semi-political thing, and Chuck Austin, God knows, he's got some very firm, very strong uh, political opinions. And so he responded to he commented on this thing that i posted he didn't outright call me names some of which could be actionable for all i know he never he never went to quite that level but he implied quite a lot and it all ended up with him unfriending me on facebook because he and i were facebook friends and it's like this was kind of this sort of passing, milquetoast sort of thing, political thing that I posted. And I don't even remember the specifics of it, but I do remember that my intent in posting that was, hey, guys, get a load of this. Truth really is stranger than fiction sometimes. Yeah. And that was pretty much going to be the angle of, or that would have, that was the angle of my comments and the stuff. But it's like, motherfucker didn't even care to read that. He just went off the fucking handle used a bunch of profane words. Again, never actually called me names, but he implied certain things about my character and then wrapped the whole thing up by unfriending me. You know? Now, guys, I don't know much, but I know this, all right? Chuck Austin does not have, especially at that time, uh, Chuck Austin did not have a whole lot of fans in the comic book world. 
All right. There were not very many people in comics, like collecting comics, reading comics, who looked at a Chuck Austin comic and thought, hey, that's something that I want to read. Most people really were hard on the guy. And like I say, a little too hard on the guy. I mean, again, we were judging his work based on the based on it being incomplete and where we thought things were going based on where things had been. And I just thought that was not cool, you know? I was one of the few people that was out there saying, hey, guys, he's really getting a bad rap here. We we really need to reappraise the stuff that is out there because I'm telling you, number one, it's really high quality. And number two, the only reason that I can think of for writing the stories in this way is if this is the direction that you're going to go, this direction over here, to finish your story, right? Which obviously he never got to finish it, but still. And then later I ended up getting kind of vindicated. He gave an interview with somebody, uh, CBR maybe, but it was somebody basically saying that, yeah, you know, ultimately this is where I was going to go with my action comics stuff. And I pretty much called it, you know, I was right. He was going to like all this stuff that he, all these things that had gone wrong, he was going to put them right. You know, I was one of the few people out there saying that. I was one of the few people out there saying, hey, this guy's actually a really good writer. You know, he's he, he's good. These are some really entertaining issues. And I bet things were going to go in a positive direction. And sure enough, I got vindicated on that. He said, yeah, things were ultimately going to go in a positive direction. And what does this motherfucker do? He just shuts me out. He unfriends me. He curses me out. He just says all this stuff, none of which is true. And he basically alienated one of the few fans that he has in this hobby what's left of it and this is the absolute state of the comic book industry guys somebody who is as nearly universally fucking despised as chuck austin he's got basically the emotional maturity of a four-year-old fucking blew up on my facebook and like i say cursed me out and and all these other things and then just unfriends me and it's like do you guys seriously think i'm gonna buy Another Chuck Austin comic after that? Do you seriously think I'm going to give this guy another fucking nickel as long as I live? He could be homeless on the street begging... Well, actually, that's kind of an extreme example. Yeah, but then I probably would help the guy. But point is, I'm, I'm not going to do anything short of an emergency situation. I'm not going to do anything to support him or his work ever again, okay? I'm sorry, dude. You don't have the right to, to treat me that way and expect to continue getting my money, okay? I'm fucking done with these these creators who... Well, anyway, so, Prime, I know that you weren't trying to touch off a rant here, and I'm sorry for treating you to one. It's just... This has just been... You know what? If I... To even justify anything I've said up to this point, I'm just going to keep digging this hole, so I'm just going to move on. So, again, my apologies, Prime. I'm going to try not to let this happen again, okay? I really am sorry here. So anyway, uh, let's see, where did we drop off? Yeah, uh, Prime says, Bendis just cares about the stories that he wrote and even had the Purple Man mock that fans cared about continuity. I'm not sure how harshly the Purple Man did it as I, as I only have read the opening story arc of the follow-up to Alias called Pulse, but really don't think I missed much. And Prime, this is, um, I'm putting your email on pause again. I enjoy Alias as a comic book. Now, keep in mind that I've done a couple of Alias episodes, and basically, 
it comes down to this, all right? Uh, it, I just found myself in an alias mood, so I read those issues of Alias, and then I podcasted about them. And I don't know when, but I'm thinking probably kind of soon, I'm going to be in another alias mood. And so I'm probably going to podcast about those issues. And I remember having an overall um, positive impression of Alias as a comic book. Really digging it. But one of the things that's become very apparent to me is I have virtually no recall of anything. It's just, it's one of the, it's it's like a lot of things that, that Bendis writes. I mean, to be fair, a lot of the stuff that he writes, it's good, it's engaging, it's entertaining. It's always fun to read while you're reading it, but it's like the minute you finish, it's like you're hard-pressed to to remember too much of anything that happened, you know? So, and that's kind of where I'm coming from with Alias. I remember having an overall good opinion of the series in total but in terms of specifics you know who did what to whom and which issue at at what time for what reasons i couldn't i couldn't tell you so i do remember there's some stuff in there i really don't like but anything other than that i don't know so uh prime my i guess my point here is to say that part of me wants to disagree with you but i don't i don't know i Whatever. I enjoy Alias, but I guess we'll see how things turn out uh, when I ever get back to it. So, hope that covers it. Getting back to Prime's email, though, because this is supposed to be about him rather than me. He says, Alias and Untold Tales of Spider-Man both kind of fit together as both have a female character, such as Jessica Jones, who is retro retroactively a background character in an early Amazing Spider-Man issue. And... That I did not know, Prime, so kudos to you for realizing that. From Peter's early days, become a become a superhero in them. Just that one writer knew what the continuity was and the other won't if he got shivved by it. Huh. The first appearance of Mysterio. That had to be an interesting story to read a reprint of. And guys, what I think Prime is talking about here, my first real Spider-Man story that I ever read... It was basically an issue of Amazing Spider-Man classics that my my dad bought for me. And the reason being, he read Spider-Man when he was growing up. And so one time when he was at, when we were, the two of us, we were at the the comic book store together. Uh, he picked up, among other things, an issue of Amazing Spider-Man classics. And so I... Not knowing, I, I don't think he understood that this was a reprint. I think this was just luck of the draw, but it's like at the same time, it would be kind of funny if this was an issue that my, my dad owned when he was a kid, so I don't know. But anyway, so I took it home, read it, and I knew this was a reprint. I mean, I wasn't, I, I may have been stupid when I was a kid, but I wasn't really stupid. So I, I was sharp enough on the uptake to know that, yes, this is a reprint, and all that. But this was the first real Spider-Man story that I ever read. And it was uh, Spider-Man's first encounter with Mysterio. And loved it. Loved it. This was a great issue. And this is... My memory of it is this is one of those few times when you finish a comic book, flip it back over, and you just reread it. That's That's my sense of what happened. I had a real blast with it. And to this day, I kind of regard that as a really good, really fun Spider-Man story. So, I, I Prime, I get the idea that maybe you and I have sort of a different view of that particular story. I dig it. 
So I just want to get a sip off of my Coke here. Anyway, so Prime goes on to say, and kind of funny, you said mocking Mysterio's costumes. Uh, costume was a Kevin Smith thing when Kevin Smith himself used Mysterio in his Daredevil run and as a major threat to old Hornhead for the entire opening story arc at that. Yeah, Prime, um, that was actually a big part of why I said that, actually. I do kind of remember saying that about Kevin Smith and Mysterio. And the reason for that, I... I couldn't tell, maybe it was some evening with Kevin Smith thing. It, it was something, I don't know. I mean, the guy, he's done a lot of talking about Daredevil over the years. And in particular, he always talks about Mysterio. And, or not always, but he has talked about Mysterio. And he, every time he says it, it's like he always finds a way to make a jab at Mysterio's Let's face it, it is kind of a goofy costume. Like, even by Silver Age standards, this is just kind of a goofy costume. But you get the idea that he likes Mysterio, and even used Mysterio in that uh, Guardian Devil storyline in Daredevil. He was kind of using Mysterio in a sort of ironic sort of a way. And here again, I just, I have problems with it when creators who did not create a given character kill a character off all right look if what you want to do is kill a character off then create your own character and kill them off but for as much i just i don't know i mean mysterio this is a character that goes all the way back to the to the silver age karen page is a character that goes all the way back to the Silver Age. It's like, you, you you get to a point where you don't have the right to kill these characters off, okay? They've stuck around. They've made it this far. If Frank Miller isn't going to kill off Karen Page, then who the fuck are you to kill off Karen Page? So, I don't know. And, and honestly, I mean, a lot of this is kind of... It kind of owes back to the fact that, number one, Karen Page... It's not that I... Well, whatever. Anyway, I don't want to treat you to, to another rant, so I'll, I'll just skip that stuff. Point is, you know, I'm kind of pissed off and have been for a long time that Kevin Smith killed those characters off when he didn't create them, and they went back so fucking far. I mean, even if this was... Even if we were talking about characters that were created even in the 80s, I mean, even that is kind of iffy, if you ask me, but... Characters that go back to the Silver Age, to the virtually to the inception of Spider-Man and Daredevil, who the fuck do you think you are? And then on top of all that, whenever oh, Prime, I'm giving you another rant here. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna. I'm look. I'm really not in a bad mood, Prime. I'm honestly not. So I don't know why I keep blowing up at stuff. So anyway, forgive me. Getting back into Prime's email here, he says. Uh, to be fair, I never have read Spawn, but won't give you shit about reading it at all. Though, you do give a crap that Angela from it is now in the Mar the Marvel Universe and Thor's sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is... That is a weird turn of events, Prime. I gotta tell you, this character that was created by, let's face it, sort of a Marvel exile, this character is now a Marvel character. I mean, I get that legally... 
Todd McFarlane is not the creator of Angela, but it is weird. I don't know. Just that whole situation. That's just, that's fucked up. Like only in comics, but you know, I, this is one of those things though, that it kind of makes you wonder like how many times, I, I, apparently enough, I guess, but I mean, how many times has Todd McFarlane been sued because he just didn't, he didn't dot his I's and cross his T's with the legal stuff. You know, he just was a little too fast and loose with legal issues and ended up paying the price for it. And I don't know. That's just, that is, that, that's wild though. Yeah. Angela, her first appearance is in Spawn number nine. Her last appearance is some fucking Marvel comic book or another that nobody gives a shit about. It's just so funny to me. So anyway, moving right along, Prime says, It's a bit strange to consider an image of the 90s got some of her, his first professional work on Infinity, Inc. As in the, the children, godchildren, etc. of the members of the JSA, also known as the first superhero team ever. Just goes to show, seeing who worked on what and with whom in the comics industry always is interesting. And yeah, that's true. Honestly, I'm I'm kind of blanking on McFarlane's Infinity Inc. stuff. I'm I've been meaning to go back and give that stuff another look, but um, I don't know. It seems like there's always something else to read. I don't know. So anyway, getting back to Prime's email, he says, "Oh geez, the armpit of the Clone Saga is not a place to start reading Spider-Man." I had for mine Spectacular Spider-Man number 199, the first half being the original X-Men and Spider-Man fighting Professor Power, and the second half starting towards what would not change comics forever, at least it wasn't going to be a whimper for an issue 200 event. Issue number 199 also had an interesting scene where Peter and his father, there's some story shit going on with this, guys, but yeah, Peter and his father dealing with Peter's disappearance and the two coming to terms they that they won't exactly be able to be a typical father and son. Oh, and actually Ben Riley did have a solo series. And yeah, actually Prime, I, I think other people have corrected me on that, like on Facebook at the time. But yeah, at, at the time that you heard that, yeah, I got an earful about that on Facebook. So hey, mea culpa. Next, we got Batman Prey. And then talk on the Legion of Superheroes, the first appearance of them, in fact. Silver Age Legion is really odd, and Prime, I could not possibly agree with you more. Look, some of that Silver Age, like, and I mean like 60s era Legion stuff, some of that stuff is actually all right. A lot of that stuff is just kind of legit, like science, fantasy, superhero type stuff, no problem. Other stuff, though... Some of that Legion stuff from the 60s is more fucked up than a soup sandwich, man. I mean, that is just fucking... like. And I'm a comics guy, all right? I love comics. And even I read some of that Legion stuff from the 60s. And it's like, what the fuck was that about, you know? So, yeah, it is. It's, it's odd. So, anyway. Prime finishes up his email by saying, I do look forward to seeing the post-zero hour... Yeah, sorry. Let's try that again. Do look forward to seeing the post-Zero Hour Legion discussed on the show. Signed, Fanboy Miss Prime. And Prime... <sighs> look, I'm going to be honest with you about this, Prime. Um, how how shall I say this? Uh, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm look. I'm not promising anything either way, but I really don't know if I'm ever going to talk about post zero hour Legion on this show. And one of the reasons for that is because at least to start with, a fair bit of that stuff was written by Mark Wade. Now there was a time when I really did respect Mark Wade's work. You know, I, you know, you talk about his his stuff on the Flash or Impulse, Captain America, uh, just, or hell, for that matter, even, even you know, his various Legion stuff, you know, uh, that he's done over the years. I mean, some pretty solid stuff, I, I, I must say, on a professional level. On a personal level, yeah, that's, that's a little bit different, you know. The fact is, you know, speaking of toxic creators look i don't want to repeat everything i just said but this whole idea of like just combative angry abusive toxic creators all of that stuff in my opinion applies to mark Wade. all right i just it's really hard for me to be objective about his work anymore it's hard for me to even tolerate some of his stuff anymore i mean I can at least read some of Gail Simone's old comics and think, yeah, you know, there was a time when she was less of a brat, you know. Or I can read, uh, you know, Chuck Austin's uh, action comics, and it's like, yeah, look, I mean, the guy did behave, I think, kind of inappropriately, you know, in my opinion. But yeah, whatever, you know. It at least he at least a few of those issues are still pretty decent, you know on and on and on. Mark Wade, it's just not like that. You know, that guy has crossed, it's not even just that he's crossed the line. He's crossed so many lines so many times. And so anyway, there you go. I don't, like I said, I don't want to repeat the whole thing, but everything that I've said about previous creators and them being just kind of jerks applies to Mark Wade cranked up to 11 to your ears bleed. I mean, it's just, I don't know. So I'm not saying it's never going to happen. But I prime, I'm really not promising that it will. I mean, just to tell you how disaffected with him I've become, there was a point, and I want to say it was probably like a year ago, something like that. I started up a... It was going to be... These episodes, you understand, were never released. None of this stuff ever came out. But I did start recording a series of episodes about the first couple of issues of Irredeemable. And the idea was going to be that I was going to do some issues about Irredeemable, and then once that title, Incorruptible, started, I was going to do an episode where I talked about one issue of Irredeemable, and then the concurrent issue of Incorruptible, right? And then just follow that all the way through to the end of the series, right? That was going to be my game plan. Like I say, I even got started on it. I knocked out, I want to say, two episodes of Irredeemable, and then certain things happened with Mark Wade, certain things came to light in the media you know, in the news and everything, like uh, the comic book news and all this stuff, just who he is on kind of a personal level. And it's like, you know what? No, you don't, you don't get to do that. No, 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 you, you don't get to do that. So instead of releasing an episode uh, of uh, this show, about Irredeemable, I instead released an episode called Mark Wade is Sued. So, anyway, all of this is to say, I, I'm not, I mean, I, first off, I absolutely promise, I 100% gold plate guarantee 
I will never, ever talk about irredeemable or incorruptible on this show. I, I'm giving you my word right now. Take it to the bank. It is never going to happen. Ever. Never, ever. Legion of Superheroes, the post-Zero Hour stuff. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I tend to think no, but maybe. You know, so that's really the best I can do for you right now, Prime. So, anyway, so Prime, look, I'm really sorry I blew up like this. I Look, dude, believe it or not, and I would understand if it's not, but believe it or not, I'm really not, like, angry or in a bad mood or something like that. You know, I... I I don't know. I just, apparently I've got a bee or two in my bonnet here, and so I, maybe you accidentally kicked the nest, all right? Look, I'm sorry. I hope you don't take this as, like, me blowing up about stuff as me blowing up at you, because I'm not going to do that. But, you know, look, I'm really sorry I got so mad and all that stuff. I, I really hope you don't take it personally. And, um, like I say, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to write in and writing... It's such a detail-oriented email, man. I, I just really appreciate that. This really was a uh, just a real content generator, you know? So, anyway, and like I say, sorry about all the ranty rantiness, but, uh, anyway. So, like I say, thanks a lot for taking the time to write in, Prime. It's always a lot of fun going through your emails, and I just, uh, I just always appreciate it. So, anyway, guys, so that, I think, is uh, basically the end of it for, not only for feedback, but also for Spawn number two in general. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be talking about Spawn number three. I think everybody could have probably predicted that, but anyway, that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. 
do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I release new episodes every Tuesday, and sometimes those episodes are all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis of each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, a feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and see for yourself why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville. A feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com. <laughs>